This is the Humans of Gaming Podcast, an open and honest conversation about games, life, and belief. podcast and i'm joined with chris qualtney hey chris hey i'm chris i'm the chief executive nerd for love thy nerd and uh the second half of the co-host part that's why drew has to say he's a co-host because i'm here Uh, because you're the chief executive nerd it means you're like really good at nerdery or does that mean you're like good at do a mix of you mix business with nerding oh yeah maybe that's what it is I don't know. We'll You've kind of stumped me. I don't, I've never even thought about it. I think I was just in the right place at the right time, I guess. Mine could mean a lot of things too, depending on how you interpret it. But uh, we have a special guest this week and that's Josh Heath. Hey, Josh. Hey, how are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing really well. I'm happy to be here. Always yeah. happy to talk about games and, you know, meet new folks and uh, it's a, always a good time. Absolutely, man. You uh, reached out to us recently and told us about a lot of the things that you're you're up to, but you do a lot of different things in the game space. Um, so yeah, kind of. How would you introduce yourself? How do you how do you tend to frame who you are in terms of what you do in the gaming industry? I'm the um, COO, the Chief Operating Officer of High Level Games. I'm the um, kind of the, our content creator. Um, director. So I do a lot of the interaction with our um, creators, um, creating different products that we put out in different spaces. We do a lot of community content work. Um, So we work in the Storytellers Vault and the DMs Guild, um, as well as creating our own stuff. For those of our listeners who are kind of like, who are more like video game nerds or or board game nerds, but not into D&D and tabletop kind of stuff, your your publications, High Level Games is mostly like tabletop role-playing right yeah about 98 percent tabletop role-playing and two percent larp so which is live action role-playing game mm-hmm. so we, we mostly focus uh on the analog gaming space and occasionally in digital gaming but very very rarely i feel like sometimes we take this for granted too i just feel like sometimes i need to remember that there's going to be people listening that don't know you know what in the world like we're talking culture, about right like nerd <laughs> culture is so broad and there's so yeah. many different aspects of it nowadays or geek culture um so when we say tabletop role-playing i should probably also say like what what do we mean what what does that look like so that's a good, good question it's always hard to describe and i uh run into this a lot in projects that i'm involved in where i'm talking to people that don't game at all and kind of assume when you say gaming that you're talking about video games um yeah. so i usually describe it um as collective role-playing or collective storytelling um finding you know opportunities to tell stories around a table or not if you're doing live action stuff um and then I usually reference Dungeons and Dragons, which people sort of have an idea of what is, even if they don't really have an idea of what mm-hmm. it is. Um, they and have that enough kind of idea people. to like be frightened or weirded <laughs> out. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> usually one of the two extremes. Or really excited, depending on yeah. Absolutely. So, um, so yeah. Sorry. So you run high level games, mm-hmm. um, and when did you get started doing that? 
so I um, I don't uh, so I'm a co-partner in high level games. Um, so my uh, business right. partner is out of Edmonton, um, Alberta, which is in Canada um, for folks that are not familiar with Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, and we connected about three years ago now. I had started working on a few game related projects, started my own website and started doing freelance work for his website. And we realized we were a good business team and decided to um, merge our businesses in October when we ran a convention. Uh, it was a good time to formalize everything. Um, so I've been a partner for only about six months, but I've been doing work with the company for three years solid now. So have you always been into tabletop role-playing games or or has that always been an interest of yours? For a long time, yeah. I got into role-playing games when I was 15, about. Um, I played a little bit of a, of a game called Robotech, which people might know from the TV show. Um, yeah. An animated show um, and a great show. Um, and then I got into live-action role-playing through a game called Vampire the Masquerade um, in the World of Darkness, which is, um, which is an interesting space uh, and probably something if you wanted to dig into we could talk about. Um, but then I went into the army and I uh, kept playing games, Dungeons and Dragons and things like that with people I was in the military. And uh, when I got out, I went to school and took a little bit of a break, but realized in grad school that my career trajectory wasn't where I wanted it to be. I, I did a degree in international peace and conflict resolution, thought I was going to go to work for the UN, realized that wearing a blue helmet wasn't really exactly what I wanted to do with my life, and then decided, mm. you know, what I would like to do with my life is get people to play games as a way of talking to one another and building relationships with one another. So that's yeah. kind of um, that's kind of why I dived into the um, into the more not corporate, but more business side of gaming uh, is for that reason. Well, you'd, uh, you mentioned too in our, in the, when we were emailing about reach out role-playing games that you created that what's that? Yeah. So um, reach out role-playing games or as I call it roar pig, just cause it's a fun acronym. It just rolls off the tongue. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's a form of intercultural dialogue using role-playing games. Um, one of the reasons I, went into the military, which is kind of a a weird thing, was I wanted to, um, I wanted to get money to go to school, to go into peace building, which seems like a really roundabout way of doing it, joining the military to do that. But ultimately I was like, I want to see the world. I want to interact with people that I haven't had the chance to do so. Um, and it was a way of, of making all of that happen. Um, and reach out role playing themes is kind of the the linking of those two sides of my um, I say two sides and there's probably thirty sides of my personality and my background, <laughs> but saying hey, getting people talking to one another and maybe finding common ground and building uh, relationships with each other, which I think is the essential component of building peace. Role-playing games are a really good way of doing that, of building those shared experiences. Um, so reach out role-playing games. Roarpig is the method that I'm developing to do that in a kind of formal fashion. Yeah, that's really interesting. Do we, Where did you get this um, kind of uh, fascination with, or not fascination maybe, but like commitment to do something that promotes peace? Like, what, where did that come from? Do you have a sense of 
Was is that connected with your time in the military or? It's probably a mix of a few things. Um, I grew up in a family that, um, that conflictual <laughs> is probably a good term for, for the relationships that they all have with mm-hmm. one another. But I also have a real strong sense of, of service. And I got, I had that a little bit before I joined the military, even, even though like I went in with the goal of getting out and kind of getting something mm-hmm. from it, the idea of, of, of serving people in my community is really important to me. And it's an extension of all of that. It's an extension of the sense of, uh, of the human responsibility to one another, um, which mm-hmm. I think is just kind of built in to me from lots of different layers of things. So it's hard to say. There, there's so many things that probably um, feed into that. that I want to get into that more, uh, but I, I'll hold off uh, because I do want to hear about why you feel like role-playing games in particular are help, are like a a good space for peace building, for working towards peace. Um, because I think like, we kind of talked about, we kind of danced around this earlier, but there's a lot of people that look at role-playing games and I think like it's less this way now than it used to be, but there's a lot of people that look at them, especially like in, in Chris and I's kind of world where we're around Christians a lot of times. Cause we're like, cause we're Christians. We go to church and stuff and we work in a nonprofit Christian organization that we co-founded. <laughs> um, but there's a lot of people that are sort of skeptical of role-playing games. But then there's a lot of people today too, that just think they're weird and don't really get it. So what made you want to, you know, what, what made that space rife for that kind of discussion? That's a good question. And I, I think the answer that comes immediately to mind is one of the biggest struggles that people in conflict have with one another is the sense of, of depth of the conflict. Often that becomes really difficult to see over the walls that you create, um, there are lots of examples I can think of. Um, uh, let me use Ireland uh, just real briefly, and there are still some issues there. But during the Troubles, which was the conflict between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, um, mm-hmm. people had a, a, a hard time seeing the commonalities between one another, and art mm-hmm. and uh, things like that were used uh, heavily in the process of reconciliation between um, both parts of Ireland. And I think the reason that art and that sport become so good for doing that is because it gives you a chance to kind of separate yourself from the from the layers of the conflict that just become this like dense wall is really the best word. It becomes a wall that you just can't get over. Mm -hmm. Right. And, And I think that role playing games are really good for separating yourself momentarily from all of those things that kind of absorb you into who you are, which includes Hmm. all of those stories that are part of the conflict, especially generational conflicts. So role-playing games give you the chance to say, Hey, I'm someone else for a moment. And maybe I'll say something that I don't feel comfortable saying otherwise that gives an insight into why the conflict exists and hopefully helps people kind of break through that wall a little bit. It kind of creates like a safe space to experiment a little bit, maybe. Yeah, exactly. And it's the same kind of space that, um, that game therapy is using. Um, 
I think you guys had spoken to um, maybe it was the Critical Core folks or one of those folks recently. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that they, they do in the kind of game therapy space is it's good for helping people that are struggling to um, see their own, like see themselves and how they can control themselves in certain situations as a form of cognitive restructuring. It's the same type of thing in the peace building space where you can separate yourself from that for a moment and restructure how you, how you interact with, uh, with that shared narrative helps to take a step back and breathe. And I think too, like, I mean, we're seeing more and more of these kinds of, um, or or if people, I should say people seeing the potential of, of tabletop role-playing games being a great space for really healthy, interpersonal communication and and just team building and um even like like built like for the game to grow guys the guys are doing critical core like for them it's a lot of a lot of helping kids you know helping young people develop some self-confidence and some like understanding of themselves and and that kind of thing Mm -hmm. um my fear with some of this kind of stuff is that people just won't give it a shot you know, because I think there's still just the stigma. Now it's changing. Like, I think Dungeons and Dragons has kind of, like, seen a, a pretty big resurgence in popularity. Like, I think it seems to be in for sure kind of a new golden age. But still, I think there's the stigma of, like, oh, that's weird. Like, that's got to be too complicated for me. I'd be curious to hear what you would say to somebody who's like, oh, that looks weird or complicated or just doesn't want to dip their toe in. Like, how do you get somebody to give it a shot and, and, and take some interest in it. And because otherwise they're not going to get all these great benefits sure. that you're talking about. There are a couple of ways that you can go about it. And, um, I'm going to go with this. I'm going to start with a slightly underhanded one in that you don't necessarily tell them kind of what's going to like, what it is that you're suggesting. Got it. Come over Maybe to my house. Yeah. Roll these <laughs> dice. Just um, trust me. <laughs> I, I think what you can do is tell people, hey, we're going to play a game. And it's a bit of a um, of a storytelling game. You know, the type where I create mm. a little bit of a line and then you write a line in a story. That's the type of back and forth we can do. You can get people to do that on the fly because people do it often as kids and kind of are like, oh, yeah, I know how to do those sorts of like telephone um, games or like single sentence poetry yeah. games. I think you can do that fairly easily if you give people a taste of it and then say, there's a way to do this game that's a little bit more involved in that. Um, is that something you'd be interested in doing? Um, or, you know, giving people like a sense of, hey, this is like a Game of Thrones sort of thing, or even giving them like one of those, uh, one of the actual play episodes that are out there and saying, Hey, it's sort of like this, but I'm not as cool as them. Like, I think there are a lot of ways to break <laughs> through people's perceptions these days because there are ways yeah. to, to view the media that just didn't exist 10 years ago. Do you have like some examples of ways you've, you've, you know, you've done this or, or like some benefits you've seen people experience in terms of like conflict resolution in, in, in yeah. games you've played? Um, one of the things that, um, that I've, one of the games that I've set up um, was effectively structured to pit um, a group of halflings uh, versus a group of goblins. And the group interacted with the, 
Halflings right. are like Halflings hobbits. Halflings are, are almost exactly like hobbits. They basically were hobbits. They just had the serial numbers filed off. Um, and <laughs> goblins are <laughs> kind of more aggressive hobbits. They're uh, uh, they're like the small oryx in uh, Lord of the Rings for anyone that's seen that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But generally, goblins are kind of the uh, a monster race that people uh, that characters will go out and and kind of whip like free willingly murder and not really think much of. Um, but yeah. in the game, I, uh, in this particular adventure, I'd set it up. So the goblins were immediately likable, um, sensitive, and that they were, even though they were still goblins and they still in some ways acted like traditional goblins do, um, that the players first interacted with them. And so they got their perspective on things first. And then the, the idea was that there was a conflict over land between these two groups and the, um, the halflings were not in the wrong and nor really were the goblins in the wrong. There was a bit of mixed ownership of this land over, geez, I think I said it was about 500 years, 600 years. And the players at my table were all folks that had been involved in different generational conflicts um, around the world, you know, not not always directly. There were a couple people that had been directly involved in them, um, and they kind of got to see how these sorts of stories get created. Um, and one of the things that I did a lot of was uh, mini narratives, where one of the halflings, one of the goblins, would start telling a story about something that happened. And I would try and create key moments where those two stories would link up and they would be the same, but then they would diverge into the different perspectives of it. Um, and the players at the table slowly came to realize like, okay, what we're learning here is that everybody's way of telling the story of this event is different. And hmm. when we're talking about this conflict, I have to remember that even the way I remember it or the way the story has been told to me is not going to be the way as the folks on the other side or the multiple faceted sides are going to tell that same story. Um, mm. So that's, I haven't done this as much as I would like to yet. Um, but that's one example of kind of like the intentionality you can build into adventures that help people look at conflict like that. Um, the rest of my kind of examples that come to mind are a bit more like personal like direct personal or like a per person's kind mm. of like, Oh, I'm playing a bad guy. Now I need to play a good guy. And that changes kind of like the way I interact with the world. So I think you can do lots of different mm. layers with this, depending on what you're doing with a group. I love that. And I wonder, you know, for someone like you or other people out there that want to create these kinds of stories, like I would, if I were to create something like that, I'd be really worried that it wouldn't be nuanced enough. Or that like I'd just be too on the nose with it or like it would just be seeping with agenda like because you almost when I mean, we joked earlier about like tricking people into playing, you know, D&D &D or whatever. But like I, I think those types of uh, you, you kind of almost have to like trick people into that because if they knew going into it that it's going to be talking about something deeper or larger like. They'd probably just say pass, you know, like, I, I don't know if I'm making sense, yeah. but is that something that you take into account? Like really trying to be pretty nuanced in the way that you're telling that story so that people can own it. I think that's a really fair 
kind of question slash critique. I think the way I've written the, the Roarpeg method to deal with this is in three different layers. The first being you tell people upfront and people do dialogue around the world intentionally um, for lots of reasons. And they know going in, hey, this is going to be a dialogue right. session. People are going to tell their stories. Great. Um, and so you can tell people up front, hey, we're doing this with the purpose of we're going to play a game that's specifically going to talk about these issues without directly talking about them. And then we're going to directly talk about them afterward. And th you can do that or you can do a mixed method um, or sorry, let me give you the like third method and then we'll go back to the mixed method. Third method is you don't tell them at all. You kind of say, hey, this is going to be a fun activity. It has nothing to do with whatever conflict we're talking about. You play through it. And then at the end, you kind of debrief with them and let them kind of see what they what they want to see out of it. Um, and maybe they get the things you were going for. And maybe they don't. And maybe you kind of are a little heavy handed there. Maybe you aren't. It all depends on kind of what works for the group and what kind of the goals of the dialogue are. And then there's a middle method, which says... I'm going to tell you a little bit about what this is about. We're going to have some intentional dialogue around it. Um, and then some of it's just going to be fun. So we're interacting with one another. So I think there's ways to do all of that, depending on what your goals are for the group that you're working with. I think there's this fear because we, we talk about this as in like the realm of like Christian art and things like that. Like I think there's this real aversion sometimes for a lot of people with quote unquote like Christian art or something because it it's like oh this must this has an agenda and so um you know people are gonna not want to engage it or or feel like it's it's preachy or something like that. Um what's that line, you know, between propaganda and art. Right. Yeah. But what you're doing I think is it's kind of different, maybe even breaking some new ground, because you're essentially inviting people into an engaging experience. That, that I mean, like I think there is an agenda to it, and the agenda is to like help people manage conflict better, which is like a really beautiful and good agenda. Um, but yeah, I, I guess I'm just curious of like. Um, which of those approaches have you, have you, I mean, if people like played the game and then played, played games with you and then realized like all of a sudden, like find themselves learning a lesson that they didn't, <laughs> they didn't expect, you, you know, were trying to teach me something. <laughs> yeah. I've definitely done the third method um, where I don't tell people what my agenda is more often than not. I think I've built that into my, my yeah. game mastering over the years a lot. Um, the thing is, is that, um, everyone has an agenda and I don't say that to, to be that's, that's true. curmudgeonly or any negative about it. Like, yeah, and no, it's true. I think I it think can be okay right. to admit, like, these are the things I like. These are the things I want to encourage in people. And as long as they're good values and the other people that are around you appreciate those things, being honest about it makes people recognize mm -hmm. when you're doing it and they might laugh with you and go, okay, Josh, I know what you're doing now. And, and you, if, if they're your friends, if they're good people, if they're looking to like learn those things, like they're not never upset by them. Um, so I think yes. it, honesty about your own agenda is fine. Um, 
So yeah. it's it's one of those things like being you know being willing to engage in it. Um, it just takes a level of honesty, and um, mm. you know I don't really know if I have any other like takeaway from that. I think that's I think that's a really great point. Like I think you know growing up like seeing all again as Drew said like we're kind of I get triggered <laughs> by like Christian stuff cuz it's just preachy and lame. But I think the reason that I get triggered by it is because it they're trying to be sneaky. You know, they're not being honest maybe or they're trying to like bait and switch or trick you or something like that. Whereas I think if you are honest or, you know, just upfront or authentic, maybe is a good word for authentic it. That's a really good word. Um, mm-hmm. Then that really, really changes it. You know, I think that's yeah. what people are looking for, especially nowadays. Like dude, social media and all this stuff has just changed, changes so much. And I, authenticity is just like, I mean, at least for me, it's a high value, you know, and I think it is for other people, too. So uh, we talked about this a little bit, but uh, tell us more about like where you grew up. What, what was that like? Sure. So I'm from New Hampshire, um, which is um, a bunch of mountains. And <laughs> it's a state. Right? You might have heard yeah. of it. <laughs> um, pretty much, you know, nine months of snow. And it's really small, it's, right? I think the fourth or fifth smallest state in the, the nation. Um, New Hampshire's interesting, um, in that it's a very homogenous place. Um, and I'm the type of person I, I, I've had a really strong wanderlust since I was like, since I could walk, I've never wanted to mm-hmm. stay in the same place. So when I turned, uh, 17, I didn't stay in the same place, um, for more than nine months at a time until I was deployed to Iraq when I spent a year in one place. So then that was like a 10 year space of time between one end mm. to the other. So, wow. Um, it's, it, so you were like backpacking and, uh, just, or just living at various places for a few months at a time or what, what were you doing yeah. during that time? Um, so I, I guess I'll go like real, like hard into this. When I was 17, my, uh, my grandmother, I, I grew up with my grandmother. My mother, uh, mm-hmm. was um, my mother died. I uh, will just leave it at that. Um, when I was very young, I, I don't think I was mm-hmm. two years old yet. Um, so I lived with my grandmother and her and I, when I was 17, uh, didn't have a good relationship for a bit. So I moved out. Um, yeah. and by moved out, it's a very nice way of saying <laughs> the situation. And, sure. uh, I moved in with a bunch of college guys who were playing D and D who I was, you know, gaming with regularly. Um, mm-hmm. I signed a lease, which wasn't legal. And uh, I, I missed 80 days out of my – As one does in that era. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, I missed 80 days out of my uh, out of my senior year of high school um, and barely – Oh, that's it? Yeah. Um, but I graduated with two independent study credits because they let me uh, basically make up my own program at the end. Because I was a, a pretty much a straight-A student, straight-B student uh, before then. So it was like, hey, this is a rough situation. I need two credits to graduate. I could have graduated in my junior year, and I didn't because I was like – my senior year is important. Um, 
which <laughs> so, uh, so those independent studies were essentially like D and D one hundred and one, and basically D and D two hundred and one. Uh, one of them was an economics credit, and I wrote up a business plan for a comic book store. So yes, you're not far off from that, actually. Wow. <laughs> My great. man, um, that's great. Anyway, the the whole thing to say there, like I spent a lot of time um, couch surfing after that, living in kind of bad situations. Uh, hmm. I was homeless uh, in San Diego. Um, when I was 24, so between 17 and 24, just a lot of hopping around. I managed a subway, you know, a lot of ness without a lot of like purpose to it. And when I was living in my car, uh, in San Diego, I realized like, Hey, what have I always wanted to do with my life? Uh, and I sat down and I wrote a 10 year plan and I said, the way to get to the end of my 10 year plan, which was to work for the UN, uh, is to go into the military uh, learn another language, get a degree, and uh, and go and do that. So I started on that path um, to do so. Wow. Um, and that feels that sounds like a pretty big. I don't know. Maybe I'm I'm I may be completely misjudging you, but it's just interesting to me to hear you you kind of went from couch surfing and and all that kind of things to like like sitting down and like all right, where do I want to be in ten years? <laughs> ten and year then plan. like. Like, oh, which feels quickly. really responsible and right. very, um, I don't know, like, I, I just, it's, how, was it a, was, what, did it feel that way to you at the time, like a 180 or was it always? So I'll tell the story like this. Um, I was uh, playing a lot of role-playing games while I was kind of in all of this space. And the characters I were playing, I was playing were, were darker and darker and darker as time went on. Um, I played a lot of horror games. Um, I played a lot of evil characters. And, um, and then I got a chance to play a really good, um, a noble bard character who, um, mm-hmm. whose whole mission was to make the province, the, um, the duchy that he controlled, good. It was a, um, in a Birthright game, which is a second edition AD&D setting that we were playing in 3.0, 3.5 edition Dungeons & Dragons. And, um, and I got the chance to play this character who was all the things that I wanted to be, who was outgoing, who was driven, who was focused, who loved people for who they were. Hmm. And, uh, when I, when I had that chance to do that and I played that character for a total of four years, it was enough to make me like, and there was lots of this stuff going on in between all of that too. But at the end I was like, this is, I can be this person having this, hmm. this chance to play wow. this character. I can be this person. Um, and so when I was live, when I was homeless, I finally said, I can be Ruinil, who was my character. I can be, uh, the things that I like about him enough if I put my mind to it. Um, so yeah, it was definitely a 180 because I, I recognized, I recognized where I'd gotten to and saw pathways out of it. So I think, you know, earlier when Drew asked, like, I forget exactly how you asked it, Drew, but like what kind of grew this passion in you about like tabletop role playing? I mean, that story right there seems to me mm-hmm. the like you yourself experienced a very real impact from like role playing games. Yeah. And I think that's definitely something, you know, only knowing you the short time I've known you. Uh, but it sounds like that's something that really has like nurtured that passion in you, you know, 
Because like you've seen what it did for your own life or what it could do for your own life. That's a great story because I feel like, you know, we one of the things we want to do with Love Light Nerd is educate people about the value that is inherent in things in nerd culture, particularly games, is a big part of that. Um, and, you know, we've already talked about how there's, there's, there's these stigmas about video games and there's these stigmas and you know some of them there's like there's some truth some truth to some of them and and you know um wouldn't throw them out completely but like i think your your story illustrates how games have the power to change people's lives for good like for the good um and it sounds like you know your experience with role-playing games with with D like was transformative for yeah. you it absolutely was. And it's one of those things like sometimes I forget about it and then I remember where uh, where it was. And then I, it, you mm. get to put the, the blocks back together again. Um, good things about having lots of things happen. <laughs> you get to revisit them yeah, on yeah. a fairly regular basis. Was, uh, was religion a part of your upbringing at all? So uh, interestingly enough, I grew up in a atheist um, household. I mm-hmm. My grandmother took me to a Baptist church once I think, uh, and she wasn't a Baptist. Yeah. She wasn't um, raised a Baptist. I'm not sure why we, she chose to bring us to that church. Um, She's like, "This is a thing people do." Probably, <laughs> yeah. Try. I think yeah, this will fix him. <laughs> I was a precocious kid. Um, Were you in a like a small town in New Hampshire? Uh, every, uh, practically every town in New Hampshire is a small town. So yes. I went. I was thinking that, but I didn't want to say it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> There's a college uh, in the town next to where I grew up, um, so it's a fairly like sizable suburban space. But but I say that, and then um, you get up there, and my, our closest neighbor was 15 minutes away. Oh, so like, yeah, small is 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 underselling. Yeah, <laughs> how small it was. Um, but um, I actually had like a crisis of faith when I was 11. Uh, I volunteered at a library. My first job was at a library. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, I was a big reader. I was a big fantasy reader, a big sci-fi reader. Um, I was not a gamer at the time. I hadn't, uh, I hadn't discovered them yet. Um, and I was like, there's got to be meaning to the universe. Um, mm. And so I read a book. Um, and this which, was how old again? I was 11 at okay. the time. So yeah. you were a deep thinker at 11. Yeah. Uh, let me give you like a short reading list that I read that summer. I oh read um, The Holographic Universe, which is uh, about space time and metaphysics. Page I read, Turner. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I read Stephen <laughs> Hawking's For most 11-year-olds, it's a page turner. Right. Um, let's see. I read Stephen Hawking's three books. I read The Book of Mormon. I read the Bible. I read um, a bunch of Buddhist texts. Um there were a couple of other things I read um, and I kind of like went through all of these different things, kind of trying to see like, okay, is the scientific end of things. In, do I have any sort of belief? And then I read a novel, believe it or not, um, called the hammer and the cross, which is hmm. by Harry Harrison who wrote uh, a bunch of sci-fi and historical uh, fiction novels. And it's uh, this idea uh, alternate history, history wise of, what if people had created an organized Norse religion and what would that have looked like in that society? And I said, that would be really cool because as a very scrawny kid at the time, I've, I'm not scrawny anymore. I've grown a lot and not 
from muscle. Um, <laughs> Amen, <laughs> brother. Amen. <laughs> but, um, I was like the the virtues of uh, of the Norse people kind of speak to me in a sort of way, and I was like, that'd be really cool if people did that, but people don't, so no big deal. Um, and then I found a, a book of of religions, a di- literally a dictionary of religions, and there was this word that I couldn't pronounce in it. Um, it's an Icelandic word. I can pronounce it now. It's Ausatrufelagith. And um, it's it meant, and it means in Icelandic, um, belief in um, the Aus- the Aesir, the, um, the gods of the Norse people, mm-hmm. um, Thor, Odin. And I was like, you know, that's what I am. I can't pronounce this word, but that's that's in keeping with what I want to, to do. Hmm. Um, and well, so what was it about yeah. that, like worldview or whatever that attracted you? And this it's, is all still when you're 11 yeah. or right. this well, has this been seems, over like several years or it started when I was 11 mm-hmm. and then I got the internet the next year. Mm-hmm. And so I learned about the kind of American expression of it, which is generally we use the term heathen now, um, which I know has a lot of loaded yeah. um, meaning for folks. Um, but in Old Norse, it simply means someone that lives on the heath, which ironically, my last name I was is going to say, what a coincidence. <laughs> right. Um, there's a German um, based Latin phrase, nomen est omen. Um, and it's kind of a joke because my last name shouldn't be Heath, but my grandmother's situation, it ended up being that way. It's very complicated. So, but yeah. Sort of <laughs> so, what is a Heath? What is, you said a heathen is someone who lives on a Heath. What's uh, a Heath? Literally, like a field or like out in the country basically okay. means like country person so you in your you emailed us and you mentioned that you were a heathen and uh i had a completely different picture of what that <laughs> meant than what you're sharing now so this is great sure um yeah and so like it took me a couple of years of kind of digging into this to really feel like what is this what does it mean to me mm-hmm. um and the religion is about gifting it's about the cycle of reciprocity, about being responsible to the layers of, of those who you interact with, being um, giving gifts to your family, because when you create a, a cycle of gifts between you, you, um, you need one another. Your bond, your connection is stronger. Yeah. We believe that, that that goes from the earth to people, to the gods, all layers of the universe have these these intricate cycles of gift between them. And the more we nourish those gifts, the more we take care of each other, um, the stronger we are, we all are. So I know directly kind of how that feeds into my peace building thinking, but that's like, that's the other layer to all of this to me is like building connections with people. That's the center of my worldview. Hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. So what does your faith look like in practice? Because I think, like, I can understand conceptually those ideas being, like, meaningful and important to you. Is there a way that you, like, center yourself on a weekly basis on those kind of ideas and try to try to practice your faith in the, in the day in and day out? Yeah. Um, it's it's layered and people do it differently. One of the things is because it's a polytheistic faith and it's a non-centralized faith is that individual expressions are often different. 
um, group expressions are different. Um, I'm part of um, a group that's that we call a kindred, which is kind of a, an intentional extended family. It's a bit like a church in that we have chosen to kind of come together and worship with one another. Um, we do that monthly um, where we will bring together uh, food and offerings that we we eat the food you know ourselves and give some to the earth and to the gods. And um, I do some I do a lot of ancestor worship and a lot of heathens do believing like that our ancestors are important. The things that they did are important to our lives. Um, so my wife and my daughter and I do a lot of um, weekly sort of um, prayers and interactions where we're talking to our ancestors and kind of thanking them. Um, and we believe that they're still present. So just wanting to have those connections and wanting to remember who they are is really important. So it sounds like I don't mean this to be, I just, I've never talked to someone from that religion, so I'm just kind of curious. It sounds like there's a, it's not just this, because I think there's some people that we, I think every religion has this problem, or not problem, but has this come up where people um, are in it for the benefits that come from it. You know what I mean? Like, they're in it for the... um encouragement to live a more like ethical life or whatever they're in it for the community or, or whatever that it brings um and and i think there's a lot of there's like a lot of christians that are that way right um that are just in it for the community or for the court but like you seem to really believe in the importance of like worshiping your ancestors and these different gods and things like would you describe it that way like i'm, I'm curious how you would frame your your own faith does that make sense i i think maybe i might ask you to clarify but um i i would say I guess what i'm trying to say I, i'm bouncing around it but i think there's a there's a lot of people that struggle to really like in our modern world where we have like we live in a very modern world where we want everything to be rooted in science and, and that kind of thing. You know, like we want like really clear evidence for everything. I think Christians even operate this way. Like they have a hard time, like um, a lot of people who profess to be Christians or whatever have a hard time, like believing that they're, that God really is at work in the world. Does that make sense? Um, and so the way you described some of the things that you do felt like there's this genuine belief that, you know what I mean? That those things are actually real. Yeah. I think that's hard for people to accept sure. in our day and age. I, I definitely get what you're saying. Um, the, the spiritual lives in the mundane is how I would describe it. In, in that, um, let me go real esoteric the, theologic for a second, in that there are two ways to view, view the divine macro speaking there's the uh, imminent uh, divine and the eminent um, divine in that you know the divine can um, can grow out of the world from kind of an animistic sense or it can be top down um, and reach into the world and i I've always got the sense that um, that Christians, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, generally view the divine as kind of coming in from the outside and reaching um, down to man. Um, 
and our, the heathen worldview is the the opposite that the the world itself gives birth to the divine and the divine mm-hmm. lives amongst and within all of us um and i would say i have experienced that in my life and i recognize that my experiences are not going to be the same interaction as other people's with the divine sure. um and i'm 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 really comfortable with that from a polytheistic standpoint because I can recognize that another person's journey and interaction with divine force is going to be different. And if it's positive and we can build a good relationship, then that's all that matters um, and kind of moving forward from it. Gotcha. Gotcha. That's really yeah. – I like that. Uh, that's really interesting, the, the whole – uh, imminent versus imminent, eminent versus imminent. You have to really articulate that. Yeah, it's hard. Uh, and I, I think you're right that most Christians would, whether they could articulate it or not, would say like, oh, it's this top down kind of model versus mm-hmm. coming from within. And I, I actually think it's supposed to be both. I think (laughs) that's where I'm at because I think, think, you know, like if, yeah, I don't know. You say something, Drew. I'm Uh, processing. I I think you're right because I was just thinking about like the Christian concept of the Imago Dei, like that, that we're all created in the image of God, which I think has something to do. Like, it's not just that we have opposable thumbs or that we can reason, um, (laughs) you know, that we're like different from the animals or something. But it's, um, I think it says that, like, the divine, the divine is, God has created us in a way that's, like, I think there's a, there, like, a Christian conception of humanity, certain, I do think incorporates both, like, God created us for a relationship with himself, I think that's a big part of what it means to bear his image, um, so we're 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 spiritual beings in a way that I think no other like creature is, or that would be like I don't I don't want to say the Christian way because there's tons of different Christian ways to like talk about humanity or or, or the self or whatever. But um, but yeah, I think there's there's space in Christianity for that, and I, in fact, I think it's really important to think through. I do think, for, though, for me most, most Christians would, like, maybe not most, but if I think of more conservative or, like, fundamental Christians, they would hear us talking right now and, like, throw us into a camp with Rob Bell and say that we're, like, <laughs> heathens. <laughs> <laughs> well, know? no, I, I think, I get what, I, yeah, but I think that... Um, just back to what I was talking about earlier, like I think we, for me personally, like I'll admit that the idea of God being active and present in my life, um, kind of directing situations and circumstances or like living in me in a way like is something that is hard for me to wrap my mind around, um, and I think a big part of it is like just living in this culture that kind of constantly tells you like, yeah, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta have proof for that. And you, you know, you need to be able to reason that out. And, um, you know, it's easier just to, to 
think about the world in sort of an empirical, like evidence, evidential sort of way. And, um, you know, I think what you're talking about, Josh, and what, 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 just to, to give some sort of like, I don't know, corollaries between the two, um, and a Christian worldview, like would require that, like, you have to, you have to really actually believe that there are, like, it, this is not just an completely empirical world. Like, there's there's spiritual things going on all around us that, um, I don't know, I think it would be benefit, beneficial for us to have a greater awareness of. Yeah. Yeah, I, I have um, a couple of, of very close um, Christian friends that I, you know, toss theology around with regularly. Um one uh, who I met while I was in the army. Um, and I think one of the, the best things that we've taken from our discussions is that the more present we are in our lives, the more the divine speaks to us. Um, and I think that's true. What, what does that look like to be like more present or, or maybe how do you, how do you strive to be more present? It's, you've got to stop like the, the phrase stop and smell the roses is really like overused and kind of mm-hmm. like silly sounding, but the, the more we can, can just stop and be in, um, I'll give an example. Um, most people, when they have children, they take pictures and they do all of those sorts of things during the birth, you know, that's people will video it and everything. And, um, and, I said from the moment I knew that my daughter um, was going to be born, I was like, I'm not bringing a camera into this. I'm, mm. I'm, I'm letting this Just gonna uh, take it in. Yeah. I'm letting this moment, yeah. this moment. It's making me a little emotional thinking about it um, oh. be, because it's one of those things. It's like, this is, this is uh, a human coming into the world. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's spiritual. It's, it's a moment you'll never have again. Um, yeah. And it's hard. Trust me. Like I do a million different projects. It's hard mm-hmm. to be present um, all the time. But when you can, um, it's just about taking those moments and setting them aside. Um, for me, it's about, you know, weekly ritual. It's about just, you know, putting the phone away for a little bit and doing the thing that needs to get done. Yeah. Um, those moments are important. Have you guys seen uh, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty? The movie? No. Yes, uh, but it's been a while. Well, Josh, based on what you just said, you absolutely need to watch this movie. Uh, <laughs> because there's, uh, I guess this is kind of a spoiler, but you should still watch it. There's this uh, photographer. He's like this world-renowned photographer. He's just amazing. Like everybody worships him because he just takes these amazing pictures or whatever. And there's this moment towards the end of the movie where he's been tracking this like super rare, um, I think it's like a tiger, I don't know, some kind of animal. And he finds it and, you know, he's got it lined up for this like perfect shot to snap this photo and he doesn't. And there's another guy there and he's like, what are you doing? Like, why didn't you take the picture? And he's like, you know, sometimes I just don't like sometimes I just live in the moment and just enjoy it. And it just reminded me of that exact thing that you just shared. Um, cause that's so counterintuitive, you know? Uh, yeah. and I think yeah, it becomes it more and more, Instagram. right? Like with each day, 
uh, as our technology grows, it becomes more and more counterintuitive, but it, it can be incredibly freeing. And it's hard, you know, it's hard, but the more we can do it, the more we can ground ourselves, um, the better off we'll be as people. I think too, that's why I love games so much is because I think games allow us to, you know, Drew, like we've talked about this a lot. Drew's given talks about like the value of play, you know, because I think it does, it, it, even though it seems weird to say like, Oh, stop and smell the roses by playing. But like it does, it takes you out of, you know, all your tasks and things that, Mm -hmm. you know, your task list and all these things that are driving you, like it takes you out of that. Um, you know, I think back to like tabletop role playing, um, gives the opportunity to experiment and play around in the sandbox, you know? Yeah. It gives you that moment of reflection and to Mm -hmm. say like, Mm -hmm. this is who I could be, or even like, this is just fun to be someone different than I am for a little bit. Um, I absolutely think that's um, that's an essential element of tabletop role-playing games. As weird as it sounds, and mindfulness is always weird like this, you have to separate yourself to really be present sometimes. And I think there's even like, oh, there's so many things we could talk about here, but just there's value in these like game experiences where we're really dialed into, where we just... Uh, like Chris, you were sharing about this on Facebook today. I oh, can't bro. remember the name of the game, but some game. <laughs> Stellaris. And like, oh my like I gosh. Think obviously, like there's, we need to be careful about getting so invested in games that we forget about our other responsibilities. <laughs> I mean, there's there's some line there's lines here that we need to probably draw to some extent, but but how? I mean, I I think about like the first time I played Minecraft. A lot of times. I mean, I just thought that it's just such a magical mm-hmm. experience, especially if no one explains how it works to you and you just kind of try to figure it all out and explore the world. And, you know, you're like, what is this? Um, what is this green creature that's about to blow up at me? <laughs> you know, I just like oh, just kind of taking it all in and seeing a sunset and figuring out how how things operate is mm-hmm. just, um, you know, uh, I think it was. um Oh, Johan Heisinga, who said, you know, games provide us this magic circle, this, like, they're all, they're, they can be like these sacred spaces. Uh, they're worlds set apart that operate by different rules. And I don't know, there's, there's something really beautiful about that concept, I think. Yeah, I agree. Hmm. Uh, we're kind of out of time here. We told you an hour and I want to honor that. Um, this is a lot of fun chatting about this. We'll have to have you on more and you can tell mm-hmm. us more about, um, about the ways of the heathens, which is not what I thought it was, which is not what I expected. I knew you were going to have a different explanation for that. I just didn't know what it would be. So this was this was super interesting to me. Great. Yeah, um, I'm, ha- I'm happy to talk about games. I'm happy to talk about that with uh, with you folks at any point. I really enjoyed this conversation. It was a lot of fun. Good. Man. Yeah, absolutely, man. Thanks for coming. And uh, where can people find your work? The stuff that you're up to. The best place to go is highlevelgames.ca. As I mentioned before, it's a Canadian company. We're sorry, um, <laughs> but if you uh, uh, you mean sorry, right? I can't do the pronunciation. I'm an American. Yeah, yeah I'll have to live with it. Um, but um, <laughs> high level games. If you Google us, um, we're on Facebook as High Level Games. We're on YouTube as High Level Games. We're on Twitter at at hlg underscore corporate it was supposed to be a joke it's not anymore 
Um, okay. And you can find us on Drive Through RPG um, as high level games um, and all of our products there. Cool. And what about you personally? You have a personal Twitter or anything like that that you'd want to mention? Um, people can go um, and find me more directly on keeponthehealthlands.com um, or roarpig.com, R-O-R-P-G.com. Um, and mm-hmm. I haven't updated those websites in a little while, but you can definitely get in touch with me there. Cool. Great. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm DrewDix82. Search for Chris Gwaltney on Facebook if you want to like be his friend and stuff. <laughs> Um, oh, that was the hard sell right there. Yeah, it's, I don't know. I've, it's different. Like Twitter feels more public. I know. You know, not I'm, that, working, I'm, not, I'm working my way to it. I, I keep really telling don't. myself, "Hey, I should really be on there." But I really, I mean, it's take it or leave it. It's a, it's a diff, it's a tough place. Uh, but you can follow us, Love Thy Nerd, on all the social medias. Just search for Love Thy Nerd. When you get to Facebook, you're going to want to like Love Thy Nerd and then ask to join our Facebook community. And as soon as we've determined that you're not a robot, we'll let you right into the Love Thy Nerd community mm-hmm. on Facebook, uh, which is a great community of nerds nerding out about nerdy things. Uh, we have a whole podcast network that we would really encourage you to check out. Go check out Free Play and The Pull List. Um the Pullist is our comic book podcast, Free Play, gets into all areas of nerddom, and also they do a great job of kind of keeping you up to date on what's going on with Love Thy Nerd um, and, and kind of connecting to our community as well. Mm-hmm. Um, that's about it. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast. Please go rate and review it on iTunes. Also, we have uh, two Facebook Live shows. One is Beard Bros, where they review board games on Fridays, and then the other is Co-Optional, which in which they'll play one of the games they reviewed in Beer Bros. Uh, Matt and his wife will play a game that they reviewed and they give away a copy. So if you like free games, um, get it. Go go check that out. So that's it for us. Thanks again, Josh. Definitely. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Josh.